what the Trump and Kushner families have in common? Andrea Bernstein will be here to talk about her new book, American Oligarchs. Why don't we know more about the violent white supremacist coup of 1898? David Zucchino will be here to discuss his new book, Wilmington's Lie. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is the January 26th episode of the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Andrea Bernstein joins us now. She is the co-host of the Trump Inc. podcast from WNYC and ProPublica and the author of a new book, American Oligarchs, The Kushners, the Trumps, and the Marriage of Money and Power. Andrea, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. All right. These are two families. I guess we kind of feel like we know them well. First of all, let's start with, do we know them as well as we think we do? I don't think so. I think for a couple of reasons. I think one is that during the 2016 campaign, there was a large media consensus that Trump wasn't going to win, and he tended not to get the kind of long-term sustained inquiry into his business past. Mm -hmm. So, Because people just thought, why bother? And he didn't file his tax returns and— Right. I mean, there's a number of reasons. People thought, why bother? It's very hard to— sustain that kind of inquiry. And also, he gave people so much other material to talk about all the time. So all of those forces together meant that that was very difficult to do. The Kushner family story has really not had much sustained inquiry in the form of a book. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I wanted to do is to really go back and understand the history of these two families, which are so interesting and are such American stories and yet are so unexpected in their outcomes. As a storyteller yourself here, this is like a lot to kind of bite off because you have two families, right? Then their stories inevitably intertwine and in the ways in which they intersect now. And then what your your title refers to, which is oligarchy and how that's evolved in this country and how the Kushners and Trumps have benefited from and embodied that oligarchy. How did you decide to structure the book, given all of that? I really wanted to tell a multi-generational family saga, because that is something that is such a compelling story. And many great works of fiction, nonfiction, theater have been centered on family stories. So there's an inherent drama in that. But I also wanted to tell a story about us and our democracy and how the rise of these two families wasn't just because of things they did, but because of how Americans failed to protect our democratic institutions over the course of decades. So while the Trump and Kushner families were gaining power in New York and New Jersey, respectively, the country was making it easier and easier for money to have influence on politics. So taxes were lowered, campaign finance restrictions were lowered, and as a result, more money, floods of money come into politics, and that is one of the great things that is under-scrutinized that has really produced the phenomenon of Donald Trump. On the face of it, the Trump family and the Kushner family have a lot in common. They're both Stories of immigration, tri-state area, rags to riches, real estate, machine politics, corruption, but very different origin stories. Right. So they're both immigrant families. Donald Trump's grandfather came during the height of the Gilded Age, basically. And at that time— like 1895? 1885. And at that time, there was so much land. I mean, it had been seized from Native populations. But there was a lot of land in America and a lot of immigration, which meant you could still change your social class. So Friedrich Trump came from Germany, where inheritance laws didn't allow him to inherit much. Was he, he like came, the number two son? Or he, was like, he, was, he was down in there in the family. I think he was the third or the fourth son. Mm-hmm. So he left Germany, came to America— quickly made his way to the West Coast where he followed the mining industry, gold mining primarily. And he was in the hospitality business, so he didn't actually make money from mining, and few people did. He made his riches in the hospitality business by situating his establishments where there would be a big flow of miners. So he had restaurants that made available food and drink and sex. And he came back with a lot of money and— 
went to Queens, New York, just as infrastructure was being built to allow people to get to Queens from Manhattan, bought land, and that's when the Trump family real estate business was born. Now, the Kushner family had a very different origin story. Jared Kushner's grandparents, Joe and Ray Kushner, were Holocaust survivors. So they escaped Nazi-occupied Poland. And Jared Kushner's grandmother has an incredibly harrowing tale of being one of a few hundred Jewish survivors in an area where there had been tens of thousands of Jews. She was born one of four children. Mm -hmm. And she progressively loses family members. She loses her sister Esther in a roundup where they send Jews to mass graves and then shoot them so they will fall into the trenches and fall into their own graves. She loses her mother when the Nazis decide that she's dispensable, will no longer be useful to the Nazi war machine. And she loses her brother after this small group of hundreds of Jews crawl under the Nazi fencing and past the barbed wire because they've dug a tunnel. It's taken them three months. Mm -hmm. It's two feet wide. They crawl out. They all get out. But then some of them, including Ray Kushner, Jared Kushner's grandmother's brother, run in the wrong direction. So he gets killed by the Nazis. But she and her sister and, and her father get out and they make it to the forest in Poland where there's a Jewish partisan group and they attach themselves to this group and they survive in the forest for the rest of the war. The Kushner family before the Nazis came, what were their circumstances? Were these middle-class Jews? Were these ghettoized Jews? Who were they? Jared Kushner's grandmother, yes. Her father was a furrier. The name Kushner means furrier. And he sold fur hats and coats. And they had a middle-class life. And there was a real civic society in this town, Novogrudic. There were There was theater, there were obviously synagogues, there was a square where people would gather and walk. All of that was destroyed by the Nazis. The family lost everything, including all their documents. So when they came to America, when they escaped and got here, what was their life like and when did they begin to prosper? It took them a long time to get here. They were stuck in a refugee camp for three and a half years. They couldn't get papers, and they finally hit upon the idea of misrepresenting their family relationships. So Jared Kushner's grandfather, who was born Yussel Berkowitz, changed his name to Joe Kushner and posed as his father-in-law's son Hmm. because they thought that would give them an immigration advantage. So he became Joe Kushner. The remaining family does get visas, arrives in New York with $2 to their name. And the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society helps them. They help him find a job as a carpenter. And he begins to build in New Jersey in this era where there is such a demand for housing and where there are huge flows of federal money through various streams to stimulate suburban home building. I guess one of the reasons I'm asking these questions about their families, these two families, framed by money, is that You do wonder. I mean, money obviously is a part of many immigrant stories. People are trying to find somewhere where they can survive economically. But would you say that it's been the primary motivator in both families for a long time? Well, I think that there's a drive to success absolutely in both families. But I think what the story that I'm trying to tell is about how much help they had, how much Mm -hmm. help they had from government, from infrastructure, from tax dollars to make themselves successes. And then once they became successful, both families, each in their own way, stopped paying taxes or avoided paying taxes. And then obviously in the White House, President Trump has taken a number of measures to sort of pull out the rug from families like his own or like his son-in-law. So the irony is is that the ways in which government and structural circumstances helped them as they were struggling families has then been substituted by – newer policies that really focus on helping the wealthy. Exactly right. Exactly right. I mean, there's, I mean, I think the sort of biggest examples of that is the the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017, which was sort of Trump's signature piece of legislation, which cut taxes so much that as the New York Times has reported, there are 
hundreds of billions of dollars in lost revenue from it, and that in 2020, we're facing a budget deficit of a trillion dollars. So the result of that means there's less money for the kinds of government programs that might help future immigrant families achieve the kind of success that these families achieved. But even before the 2017 tax law, the system was really rigged in favor of families like the Trumps. And and we know from reports at the Times and others have done that the Trumps paid little to no taxes for decades. I mean, I think that that's one of the things that I'm really hoping to say, that this was a trend that was both fueled and benefited the Trump family and the Kushner family, and then in the White House, they took it even further. So that it's a part of what I hope people come away from my book understanding is that this was a decades-long progression of American life that in some ways produced the Trump phenomenon, enabled him to get to the White House where he could then reproduce this phenomenon. Let's talk about the Kushners for a moment, because were they also a family that took advantage of these government tax breaks? In a slightly different way from the Trump family. So Mm -hmm. Joe Kushner, and I spent a lot of time looking at, I looked at all of the records I could find, these old big mimeograph sheets from New Jersey of all these New Jersey land records. And his business looked fairly normal for the time. So he would buy a lot of land, and then he would build on it, and then he would sell the houses individually, and then he would take that money and buy a bigger lot, which is sort of normal real estate. Mm -hmm. Sometime in his history, he starts to set up trusts, which was a common tactic of wealthy people in those days to sort of send wealth to a future generation untaxed. What time period are you talking about? So this is the 1960s, 1970s. It's different from what we see with Fred Trump, where he's committing what the Times called outright fraud. But what happens in the next generation with Jared Kushner's father, Charlie Kushner, is that he does commit tax fraud. He commits tax fraud so serious that he is sent to prison for it. So a distinction between Charlie Kushner and Donald Trump is that Donald Trump has always gotten away with it. He's never faced a criminal legal consequence. Charlie Kushner, by contrast, was prosecuted by the former U.S. attorney from New Jersey, Chris Christie. And one of the things that was such an amazing thing for me writing this book is that it's as if I had made up the recurring connections because you see this tension between, for example, Christie and Kushner, which started decades ago and Mm -hmm. we're still living the repercussions of now. Or characters like Roy Cohn, Rudy Giuliani, They come in very early in the book in Act 1, and then they come in in Act 5. The epigraph of my book is actually said by Charlie Kushner, and it's no human being could write this script. Only God could have. But what was amazing to me is I kept feeling that writing the book. These characters keep coming back in a way that makes perfect sense that I didn't even know it would when I began the writing. For anyone who grew up in the tri-state area or has lived here for a long time, as as you have, it, it's like you're caught in a time warp where you yes. know, these figures that were on the cover of Spy Magazine in the 80s and, like, and in the tabloids, they just keep coming back. Right. It's, it's true. It's absolutely true. I mean, one of the things that's amazing, in our own podcast, Trump, Inc., the new episode that we're working on, we have an interview with Wayne Barrett, who was the first biographer of Trump, and he did an interview with WNYC in 1992. And when he describes Donald Trump in 1992, it sounds exactly like the Donald Trump we know today, and that was 28 years ago. So the consistency of the characters, Gerald Nadler plays a role. So many people just sort of have cameos that suddenly come back and are these incredibly important historical figures. And I think one of the amazements of this book, and I didn't actually even quite understand it when I started writing because it was fairly early on in the Trump administration, was the way this New York, New Jersey style of politics would be reproduced on a national level, but not just the style. The very same people that were involved back in the day are still there now, part of our national drama. I want to go back to that Christie, Kushner, Trump, very strange triangle. You reported on Bridgegate extensively, which was a New Jersey, New York scandal of about, what, 
10 years ago, is it now? So six years ago is when we first saw the email, time for some traffic problems in Fort Lee. Okay. I'm curious to get an understanding of the relationships between the Kushners, Christie, and Trump, because, of course, Jared and Ivanka's marriage preceded the election. They were married in, what, 2009? In 2009, yeah. And so it's fascinating that Christie would even end up in any way in Trump's orbit. Was it because he was the first major political figure to endorse Trump that he was even kind of let in the door, given the relationship that the Kushners had with Christie, that antagonistic relationship for so long? Christie and Trump have known each other for a long time. One of the things that Trump has done or had done as a businessman was to court prosecutors in different ways. So when Christie was the U.S. attorney in New Jersey, Trump would drop by for lunch. And Trump obviously had a lot of gambling and business interests in New Jersey, and they became friends at the time. What's the time period we're so talking this about? So this is in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Christie became U.S. attorney in 2002. So they become friends, and that friendship, so far as I can tell, lasts to today. Separately from that, Jared Kushner's father, Charlie Kushner, was a major Democratic Party donor at a time when Christie was an ambitious Republican prosecutor wanting to root out corruption in New Jersey. And Charlie Kushner had committed blatant crimes that were irresistible for Christie to prosecute. What were the crimes? He was committing crimes of tax evasion and campaign finance fraud. And What had happened is that because of the trusts that I was talking about that his father, Joe Kushner, had set up, he was in these very tangled set of business relationships with his siblings. And his siblings, particularly his older brother, Murray, was unhappy that Charlie Kushner was spending corporate money on political contributions, on speeches, on landscaping, on entertainment, things you're not allowed to do because – That is money that is supposed to go to taxpayers, not be deducted for your own private interest. So Murray sues Charlie Kushner. Christie gets wind of it and starts an investigation. And then Charlie Kushner did what most white-collar people do when they're under criminal investigation, which is get an expensive white-collar lawyer and try to fight it before Mm -hmm. there's an indictment. He is not successful. So he ends up hiring a sex worker to entrap his sister's husband because he thinks they are also conspiring against him with a sex worker. And then he captures the whole encounter on videotape, holds on to it for a while, but when he realized the investigation is going forward, he sends it to her on the eve of her son's engagement party. And it's a family tragedy When you think about this family, what Joe and Ray Kushner did to get here, that Charlie Kushner is named for one of his mother's siblings that was killed by the Nazis. His sister Esther is named for another sibling killed by the Nazis. And here they are in this pitched family battle. But when Charlie Kushner does that, Christie arrests him for witness tampering, and he ultimately pleads guilty. Jared Kushner and Charlie Kushner felt this was a vendetta by Christie, that he was coming after them, that it was a hit job. And in all the interviews they've given about it up to this moment, so far as I know, they've very much said this was just Chris Christie out to get us. He wanted to settle a score and he came for us. So what happens in the campaign is Trump, because of his independent relationship with Christie, appoints him transition chief. He's mm-hmm. this—he's the governor of New Jersey at the time. He's somebody who is fairly well respected in the Republican Party and sort of across the board at that time. And Jared Kushner protests and says, according to Christie, this was supposed to be a family matter, meaning the matter of his father, settled by the rabbis or the family, not prosecutors. And... Jared is overridden by Trump, but then after the campaign, when Trump wins, family ties Trump everything, and Jared Kushner succeeds in having Christie pushed out, not only of the transition, but barred from any job in the administration. The Trump family seems to be run like a very tight ship, not a lot of dissent going on, at least that you hear, that escapes, you know, among the family members themselves. The Kushners, clearly that's 
not the same case. That is true. You know, there have been sort of different tensions with Donald Trump's siblings over the years, but not much. Very, Mm -hmm. very, very small. I mean, there was a case where Donald Trump wrote his brother Fred Trump's children and grandchildren out of their father's will because he felt like they had not been sufficiently loyal to the family. But in general, the Trump family has been very tightly knit, and the Jared Kushner's immediate family has been very tightly knit. And that's one of the reasons why these family dynasties coming together made sense, right. that these are two families that prize family loyalty above all else. And so neither family would talk to you. Were there any dissenters that you could find that would break rank? And- so I spoke to over 200 people for this book, and I would say m- maybe— 10 said, you can use my name. Mm -hmm. Everybody else was afraid for one reason or another. People were afraid because they'd had previous bad experiences with the families. They were afraid because President Trump obviously will bully people that he disagrees with. And even people who described themselves as friends of the families or friends of one of the individuals said, I just don't need the service. I don't need the trouble of having my name in this book. Hmm. So, Do you think they're right to be scared? Having spent so much time reporting this book and talking to people whose lives were ruined or hurt in one way or felt who felt very hurt in one way, I really couldn't tell them otherwise. So when I was describing a scene that I had learned from people that didn't want to be identified, I made sure I spoke to many, many people, corroborated it, and then the whole thing was fact-checked because I really wanted to make sure that I got it right. Mm -hmm. And I felt that that is sort of one of the uncomfortable things about being an author in the age of Trump is that people are afraid, and you just have to look around to see why. I don't want anybody to ruin their lives for my book. All right, taking a a light step back from the Trumps and the Kushner specifically to a subject that transcends both of them, even though they're deeply involved as well. The title of your book is American Oligarchs. Do you think we're living in an oligarchy? I think we're getting very, very close. And what I mean by this is that the ability for the very wealthy to influence government has not looked like it has now since the Gilded Age. Mm -hmm. And what's different now is that there's a president who's profiting from his family business while being president and that also really cares about people paying him. So he pays attention to who books rooms at his hotel. He pays attention to who's a member of Mar-a-Lago. And that means that people understand if they want to get to him and influence him, they need to pay him. Mm -hmm. The more, the better. And that's a situation where we really are on the brink of oligarchy in the sense that the very, very wealthy understand how to get access to this president to get the things they want, and they are doing it. Well, it should be an interesting election year. Given all of that, Andrea, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, and thank you for doing this. Andrea Bernstein is the author of American Oligarchs, The Kushners, The Trumps, and The Marriage of Money and Power. So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. David Zucchino joins us now from North Carolina. He reports for The New York Times out of Afghanistan, and his new book is called Wilmington's Lie, The Murderous Coup of 1898 and the Rise of White Supremacy. David, thanks so much for being here. Hey, great to be with you. First, I want to just set the scene here because I think at least if people are like me, when they think of Wilmington, they think of Delaware. This is not Wilmington, Delaware. It's Wilmington, North Carolina. Your book takes place in the 1890s. Where is Wilmington? What does it look like in the 1890s? In 1898, Wilmington was the biggest city in North Carolina. It's an important port at the time. It was the last port to fall during the Civil War, and once Wilmington fell, essentially the the war was over. And in 1898, it was a, a true outlier. It was unique among major cities in the South. First of all, it had a uh, a black majority. It was 56% black. 
highly unusual among cities in the South, but more importantly, it had a multiracial government, which was quite unusual. You had black citizens in position of power. You had 10 of the 26 policemen were black. Three of the 10 aldermen were black. You had black magistrates and postmasters and black lawyers. There was a really thriving black middle class and a, uh, a very vibrant daily black newspaper. Just a very unusual situation for the South at that time. How did that come about? Uh, it came about because, first of all, the so-called redeemers, which were the white supremacists, obviously they had lost the war and they had lost control in North Carolina and throughout the South during Reconstruction. But at the close of Reconstruction in 1877 in North Carolina and elsewhere, the so-called redeemers restored white supremacy. And in North Carolina, they were in power up until 1894 when there was a a terrible economic recession and the Populist Party, which was made up of uh, mostly poor white farmers, bolted from the Democratic Party, which at the time was the party of white supremacy. They felt that the Democrats had aligned themselves with powerful interests like banks and railroads and had ignored bread-and-butter issues like jobs and education for their kids. So they made the decision to go over to the Republican Party, which was the party of Lincoln and the party of black suffrage, and that meant aligning with black Republicans because it was blacks with their newfound votes that helped put Republicans in power, and they formed something called fusion, which was a fusion of the populist and, and the Republicans, both black and white, and they took over city government, in Wilmington, and they took over the state governments. It was very unusual at that time in the South. And then the, the white supremacists decided they were not going to let that stand. And so they began what they called a white supremacy campaign, which began in the spring and summer of 1898, which was a midterm election year, and it was aimed towards the election in the fall. So before we get to that coup and that effort, How well did that coalition of populists and black politicians and white Republicans, how well did that function? It functioned pretty well up until the white supremacy campaign. There was a lot of cooperation on the city council. And as I say, the the, the white Republicans owed their positions in power largely to the strength of the black vote because eastern North Carolina had... 18 counties in the so-called black belt that had black majorities and Wilmington had a black majority. So the black vote was extremely important. So that held up pretty well until the white supremacists began this concerted campaign in 1898 to basically to overthrow what they called, quote, Negro rule. And they aimed not only at blacks, but at what they called white race traitors. And that coalition began to fall apart under the pressure and violence of of the white supremacy campaign. All right. Who were these white supremacists and how did they gather power? Well, these were the leaders of the of the Democratic Party. There was a man named Fernifold Simmons, who was the chairman of the Democratic Party, who was an out-and-out racist. And the second most important figure in that campaign was Josephus Daniels, who was the founder and the publisher of the News and Observer newspaper uh, in the capital city in Raleigh. And it was by far the most powerful newspaper in the state at the time. It was king of media, and of course this is at a time when there there is no radio or TV or internet. All news comes from newspapers. And they mounted a campaign basically on two fronts. One was to portray blacks as ignorant and incompetent and venal and corrupt and and absolutely incapable of voting intelligently and and much less holding office and and running a government. And, And secondly, They portrayed blacks as sexually insatiable and on the prowl for white women, and they constantly told white voters that black men were coming for the women and coming for their jobs. And they just, through the News and Observer, created a fake news campaign, a propaganda campaign, just hitting all summer and all fall against blacks and against the white leadership. And at the time, almost a quarter of the white population was illiterate. So Josephus Daniels hired a political cartoonist to create these incredibly racist cartoons aimed at blacks to get the attention of the white voters who couldn't read or write. And it was an incredibly effective campaign. Was this typical of Southern white-run, generally, newspapers at that time? I don't know of another campaign that was that successful and that organized. 
In this case, in addition to the propaganda campaign, there was a military campaign. They had their own militia. They were called Red Shirts and was essentially an outgrowth of, of the KKK. Mm-hmm. And these were night riders and gunmen whose job during the uh, spring, summer, and fall of that year was to ride out through the Cape Fear countryside into black homes, break into black homes at night, yank out the black men and whip them and threaten them and tell them if they registered the vote that they would be killed. And it was incredibly successful at tamping down the black vote because blacks were, were terrified. At the same time, they also had under their control two militias in Wilmington. One was the Wilmington Light Infantry and the other was the Naval Reserves. And these were the National Guard of the day. They were supposed to report to the Republican governor in Raleigh, but in effect, they were the militia of the white supremacy movement. Their ranks were filled with white supremacists, and their commanders were white supremacists under control of the campaign. So they had a very well-planned and effective military operation. At the same time, they had this newspaper propaganda operation. What happened on November 10th, 1898? November 10th was two days after the election, and the Democrats stole the election by tamping down the black vote, by intimidating blacks and keeping them from voting, and also stuffing ballot boxes. So from that new position of power, they planned for two days later on November 10th to rise up and overthrow the municipal government because municipal elections were not until the following March. So this coalition, this fusionist coalition, was still in power. And this was carefully orchestrated. They brought out the red shirts, and they brought out the two state militias. One of the militias had been provided with a brand-new machine gun at the time. It was one of the deadliest weapons that had been invented up to that time. It was a cold, rapid-fire gun, and the merchants had bought it for him. And they used that to go through the streets, targeting black men at the same time Mobs of up to 2,000 other white men, including the red shirts, rampaged through the town. They burned the black newspaper to start with, and then they confronted blacks on the street, ended up killing at least 60 black men, terrifying black families. Hundreds of black families fled into the woods and the swamps and the cemeteries trying to hide from these gunmen and stayed two or three nights, and it was November, and it was cold and and wet, and there were uh, reports of babies dying of exposure. Hmm. And by the end of the day, they had confronted the the city council, the mayor, the police chief at gunpoint, removed them by force, and appointed themselves as mayor, police chief, and, and city aldermen. And they took not only the black leadership, but the whites, or the blacks they didn't kill, marched them to the train station, put them on trains. They banished them from Wilmington forever. They said, if you ever come back to Wilmington, we will shoot you on sight, and not one of them ever came back. And it held, this new government? It held. It basically held for 50, 60, 70 years, well into the middle of the the 20th century. In 1896, for example, there were 126,000 black men registered to vote. Ten years later, it was down to 6,100, and it it fell from there. And essentially, blacks did not vote in any significant numbers for 70 more years until after the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. No black held office in Wilmington from 1898 after they threw out the three black aldermen until 1972. Let's talk about some of the repercussions. I mean, Josephus Daniels, who you mentioned was the editor of the News and Observer, one of the key organizers of this plot, was later appointed Secretary of the Navy by Woodrow Wilson, Ambassador to Mexico by FDR, right? Right. Fernifold Simmons served 30 years as a senator. Was anyone ever brought to justice? Absolutely not. Not one single person was, was ever investigated and died, much less arrested or served time. Before and after the coup, because it was so well-planned and announced ahead of time, there was a a congressman from North Carolina, an African-American named George Henry White, was the only black man in Congress in the entire country. He met in the White House with President William McKinley before the coup, warned him what was going to happen because he knew it was going to happen. Several black ministers made a separate trip to the White House to meet with McKinley and warned him again. After the coup and the massacre, George Henry White again went and talked to McKinley, and the black ministers went again. And I could find no record that McKinley made any public statement Mm. about the events in Wilmington ever. 
there was a brief attempt with a poor man in uh, Raleigh who had been appointed a U.S. attorney for the Eastern District in Raleigh. He was a Republican, had not yet been replaced. And he gamely tried to put together a grand jury, but of course he could get no witnesses to talk. No one would talk to him, none of the whites. The one white he managed to interview before his appearance said, oh, I didn't see anything happen on November 10th. It was a completely quiet day. I didn't see anybody get shot. I didn't see any kind of uprising. So he shut down, and that was the only the only attempt to investigate, and, and it went nowhere. And McKinley was a relatively, I mean, for a short presidency before he was assassinated, progressive for the time president on issues of race, right? Oh, absolutely. He was an abolitionist. He uh, served as as a, a union officer. He spoke at the 1888 Republican Convention and, and condemned attempts throughout the South by white supremacists to suppress the, the black vote. He appointed quite a few blacks to his administration. But you have to remember, this was the summer of the Spanish-American War, and he was consumed by the negotiations with Spain, which were going very poorly. And his administration was under fire for the deaths of American soldiers in Puerto Rico and Cuba and the Philippines who were dying of yellow fever. And there were charges that the soldiers were poorly supplied, there were poor sanitation. So he was under a lot of pressure. At the same time, uh, he was uh, soon to be running for re-election. So I think he made the calculation that he did not want to antagonize not only whites in North Carolina, but across the South. And I think he made a calculated decision just to, uh, just to keep quiet. What was Wilmington's lie, the, the title of your book? The lie was for more than a century, the leaders of the white coup openly boasted about it. They wrote letters and diaries and, and memoirs, and they portrayed it, one, as a, a, quote, good government initiative that was necessary to remove ignorant and, and corrupt so-called Negro rule. And at the same time, they also said falsely, as the newspapers had been reporting all summer, that blacks were planning to rise up and riot and kill all the whites. And that's the way it was portrayed for well over a 100 years. Why is this story not better known? I think for one reason, while they bragged about it and boasted about it, it was barely mentioned, for instance, in the state's history books, almost Never, and when it was mentioned, it was the the white supremacist narrative. And I think it was just buried up until uh, 1998 when the University of North Carolina at Wilmington decided to try to bring whites and blacks together and uncover what really happened and try to have some reconciliation in the city. And in 2001, I believe, a state commission was formed to investigate the causes and the impact of the riot. And they spent five years and came up with a 400-and-some-page report that concluded that uh, this, was, this was not a riot. This was a premeditated, calculated political coup and massacre that had repercussions for, for the next 70 years. What brought you to the story? Well, I went to high school and college in North Carolina, and I had never heard about this. No professor ever mentioned it. It wasn't in any history book I ever read. I did not hear about it until 1998 during the centennial uh, when they had uh, uh, this program in Wilmington. And so I decided at that time that nobody knows this story, certainly not across the country, and most people in North Carolina didn't know about it. So I decided at that time I was going to put it aside, and at some point I would write a book about it. You interviewed descendants on both sides. How did you track them down, and what was that like? That was fascinating, and I have to say, every one of these people was very open, very gracious, and and talked at length. One was the the grandson of Josephus Daniels, Frank Daniels Jr., and my first job out of journalism school was at the News and Observer. And while I worked there, there were all these tributes to Josephus Daniels as this crusading journalist and this wonderful progressive, Hmm. and no one ever mentioned that uh, he called himself the militant voice of white supremacy, and then he had this central role in 1898. And I did talk to Frank Daniels Jr., and it was quite interesting. He essentially said his grandfather was uh, a man of his times. At the time, he thought he was doing the right thing. And I asked him, well, do you feel like you should apologize? And he said, no, I don't think there's any need to apologize. He said, whatever our paper uh, stood for back then, it stands for something completely different today. And today, the News and Observer editorially is very mainstream, liberal, democratic. Hmm. 
It's a completely different newspaper than it was back then. He just said there was no need to apologize. After the Daniels family sold the paper to McClatchy in 2006, the paper ran a 13-part series you know, telling the true story of the rebellion and really focusing on Josephus Daniels' role. And on the editorial page, they ran a long apology. They call it a shameful period, and they apologized for his actions. I mean, clearly, these kind of racial divisions obviously have not entirely healed. I mean, what did you hope that readers could draw from it today? My main reason was, uh, obviously, to correct the historical record. And I also believe we really do have to confront the ugliest and most shameful episodes of, of our history, especially ones like this that aren't well known. And what I hope readers take from this is just how dangerous and combustible it is when autocrats and demagogues use racial scapegoating and demonizing of, of people of color or people of other ethnic groups. It's very dangerous, and it can explode into violence, as it did in 1898. And we're seeing some of uh, that same demonizing today and marginalizing in, in social media by politicians, and particularly with the rise of the white nationalist movement. So I think it, it is dangerous. It's very much alive today. There are 30 buildings on the UNC Chapel Hill campus named for white supremacists, mm. and many of them were involved in, in the 1898 riot. The student stores at uh, UNC is named for Josephus Daniels to this day. Right. A necessary corrective. David, thank you so much. Thank you. It's great talking to you. David Zucchino is a Pulitzer Prize-winning foreign correspondent. He's written for The Times from South Africa, Lebanon, Iraq, and is currently reporting from Afghanistan. His new book is Wilmington's Lie, The Murderous Coup of 1898 and the Rise of White Supremacy. Thanks so much, David. Thank you. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, my colleagues John Williams, Greg Coles, and Lauren Christensen. Hi, guys. Hey, Pamela. Hey, Pamela. I know what you all are reading because we just chatted about it, and I see your books in front of you. And I'm very excited about this episode because everyone is reading such good books, <laughs> um, books that I love. Let's start with you, John. Yeah, I'm reading a widely beloved book that I, I think like most big readers, I occasionally stop and think to go back to just a stone-cold sort of curriculum classic that I never read for whatever reason. And I wasn't the most ambitious student, so there were a lot of things that I probably should have read at the time, and I was too busy reading, like, contemporary fiction. And so I picked up recently Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, which I— I thought you were going to say Ulysses. No, 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 no. I wouldn't do that to our podcast listeners. Um, So Ralph Ellison's 1952 novel, obviously it doesn't really need an introduction, but I think partly I was inspired subconsciously by the recent release of Ellison's Selected Letters, which I'm very eager to dive into. Invisible Man, I have about 15 pages left. It's killing me. I thought I would be able to finish it on the subway this morning, and I just didn't. So I'll have to do that at lunch. But also like curriculum classics that you haven't read, the first thing you just realize is how different they are than whatever thumbnail sketch you have in your head of what they're what you think they are. And so I think I was expecting Invisible Man to be great in a different way than it is. I thought it would be this sort of very existential first person, a bit more psychological. It's actually for the first two-thirds, and it's a long book, about 600 pages, it has all of these very odd set pieces. Like, the plot is very strange in some ways, and the misadventures that this character goes through in the South and then after he moves to Harlem. I imagine that most people, you know, better students than I was, remember the plot, but briefly, the book, which was published in 1952, is about this young, very smart black man in the South who's in school and then eventually moves up to New York and gets involved with the activist movement up there and is involved with a group of people, both white and black, who are trying to address the race problem in the U.S. and also is witnessing a sort of more aggressive and radical group of only African-Americans who think of his group, the Brotherhood, as too weak to really solve the problem. And so it's a lot about the push and pull. There is this – it's like a realism, but it's also – there's not clumsy in its execution, but there's something just a little bit off about it. It doesn't really feel <laughs> quite real. And these scenes that he sets, they're very realistic, but there's also something just slightly off kilter about them so that it doesn't feel very granular. It feels almost 
kind of clumsy in how you're viewing these people. I mean, there's there's a paint factory that he works at that seems a bit fantastical. There is a scene where he takes this professor to talk to a very poor man who's impregnated both his wife and his daughter in a sort of fugue-like state, and their conversation is quite surreal and intense. And it's really, until you get toward the end, it's, it's much more like you're watching these scenes between people than that you're just embedded in the consciousness of this unnamed narrator, which I think was more of what I was expecting. What happens is is that it builds to this incredible power in the last couple of hundred pages or so where there is more of that both existentialism but also kind of Ellison's thoughts about these things that the character is torn between, which is basically in the time he lived in the 50s, the character, he's basically torn between these competing visions of what it would mean to address the crises around race in America. And I'm sounding kind of generic, I guess, because I assume people have either read it or (laughs) have their opinions formed. But if you haven't read it, I would say to find out what it is on a tactile level, page by page, is an interesting experience compared to what I had thought it would be in my head. And there's a lot in the letters about, you know, the index is full, as you would imagine, of Invisible Man, because it was the only book he published during his lifetime. So I'm very curious to dig into that, and I'll probably talk about that on a future episode. Lauren, what about you? What are you reading? I'm reading a more contemporary novel. I was, you know, really interested in all the discussion about whether the new Jenny Offill book and I you know hadn't I hadn't ever read Department of Speculation which was on our 2014 best books list and you know it was just widely widely acclaimed and I was always interested in it it was just a shelved project and I thought oh it's so short I can read it anytime and then you never end up reading it but I you know, I went back and I had the same reservations or kind of frustrations that I've had with Rachel Cusk which is you know they're often spoken of in the same same breath and and it's funny because I loved Miranda Popke's debut novel. It came out last month in January, Topics of Conversation, and her debut was off. It was really compared stylistically to Cusk and Offill. But I think for some reason I found with this book in particular, Department of Speculation, I kept wanting to feel more in any direction, which is just always something that I that I think when I go to any book, it doesn't matter whether I'm afraid or sad or really, you know, hysterical laughter. I just, I really want to not be able to deny my emotional reaction to it. And I f- felt like this book really resisted that at every turn. You know, it's the story of a woman whose marriage is collapsing and there are intense moments of reserve and, and you feel that tension but then there are other moments where you kind of want her. I, I kept wanting her emotions to break through the page, whether it was, you know, when she's in a rage over her, her adulterous husband or when they have bed bugs. I mean, I want to feel that. I want to feel really. You don't want to feel that. <laughs> <laughs> <Lauren>. <laughs> Having been there. I know, I, gosh, I knock on wood. I, I wanted to just wanted that to be more vivid. And there was such restraint. And, and I admire the structure and the style and the reserve, but I was frustrated. And I, I'm sure that's part of, I know that that is part of the intention, but as a reader, I I, I just wanted to feel more. I don't You've know. You've entered hostile territory. <laughs> just know. letting you know. I know it's not a popular no, opinion. That book, right? I, I really loved that book. I loved yeah. it too. I, but Although I was telling Lauren this morning that I do think it's not a book I don't think that would have been served by reading after years and years of hype. You know, it's very elliptical and clever. And it's – I mean it's substantive, but it's, I think – I find it more clever sort of and, and epigrammatic. Well, it's, it felt very new for what it was doing at the time, that kind of fragmented style in a, and in a way that has become very influential very fast. And so suddenly, if, you know, if you're coming to it right just five years later, there's maybe something that you feel like, oh, I've seen this before. But at the time, it felt like, oh, my gosh, what is she doing with these little fragments and and the trivia that she throws in? And it all, like, locks together. The conceit of the novel is absolutely something to admire. Yeah. And then the other thing is is just what John said. It came to us without any hype. And so it's one of those books that that sneaks up on you under the radar. And, And so I was just instantly engaged and turned around and helped build the hype for it. <laughs> yeah, I felt like each episode, if because it did feel it was very episodic and fragment, felt very concentrated and highly polished, almost like poetry. Yeah. Like she was mm-hmm. doing this mix of intense emotion with a, at a remove. It felt very intentional and yet came across like if you could read it very easily and not sense all the work that must have gone into it. And I think that's one of the things I admired so much about it. Like you could pick it up and think, well, this was just dashed off, but it wasn't. You know, it's clearly very highly worked over and yet felt effortless. I I, I think it's one of those books that could be 
hurt by its own sense of effortlessness, <laughs> you know, even though it, we know how, how hard it can be to achieve that effect. Greg, you're reading a classic like I, I was. I, like, like you, I'm reading a, a classic from the 1950s. I wasn't an English major, so I'm not prepared to say that this is a curriculum classic quite, um, but, but maybe it is. I'm reading The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, which you know, for people who don't know is just what it says. It's a haunted house story. I mean, maybe it sets the template for haunted house stories or else it follows that template. It follows that template, yeah, I think. Yeah, it starts out from the, the very beginning with it a paranormal. It picks up from the gothic. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's incredibly this gothic structure, a house off in the middle of nowhere. There's a paranormal investigator who has compiled a team of three people plus himself who are going to stay at this house and investigate the goings-on that have been rumored to be taking place there. And as the book opens, I'm about 25 pages in, it centers on this one woman, Eleanor Vance, who it seems will be the central figure that, that we follow through the book. And she is kind of the 1950s quote-unquote spinster. Her sister got married and had a family, but she stayed home to take care of the ailing mother and so has denied her own life and her own possibilities to be the dutiful daughter. But as she's driving to the house, we get the sense that she has a very rich and fanciful dream life. And there's a bit of like Walter Mitty in her, the, the person constrained by circumstances, but who has the, the rich visionary experience all in the imagination. There's also a sense that she will be punished for this. One of the things I really like about Shirley Jackson, the books of hers that I have read, and, and the stories, of course, like The Lottery, she writes with such a sense of restraint, and there's a very clean style to her writing that feels also of the 50s of a, a very particular style like E.B. White. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's just storytelling. I'm going to just read a couple of sentences even to, to give you that sense. At one spot, she stopped altogether beside the road to stare in disbelief and wonder. Along the road, for perhaps a quarter of a mile, she had been passing and admiring a row of splendid, tended oleanders, blooming pink and white in a steady row. Now she had come to the gateway they protected, and past the gateway the trees continued. And there's, there's just this sense of progression, one sentence to the next to the next, that pulls you immediately in. Superficial note, you're reading a paperback version edition of that book, but there was such a beautiful hardcover that was published maybe about five years ago that's worth seeking out, which was part of a collection of Penguin horror classics that was edited by the filmmaker Guillermo del Toro. Mm -hmm. Do you remember these books? They're so Vaguely, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So beautifully designed. Anyway, I recommend reading that. And then my other fun fact is that, and you may already know this, Ralph Ellison and Shirley Jackson were friends and uh -huh. frequent oh, correspondents. I, know that. I, I wonder if she she must be in the selected letters. I'm sure. She is, John yes. is toting. Yeah. <laughs> Pamela, what are you reading this week? Well, I'm going to talk in all transparency about two books that I read over vacation. I'm still working through that list because I want to give them some attention and love. One book is Life Isn't Everything, Mike Nichols as Remembered by 150 of His Closest Friends by Ash Carter and Sam Kashner. This is an oral history. They were guests on the podcast in December, and this is just – so much fun. I mean, it's, it's a little sad because part of me, I run to the nostalgic and I just feel like I'm living in the wrong artistic era. And I wouldn't have been at any of these parties or like in these people's living rooms. But it's just these gatherings where you're like, everyone was there and they're so much more interesting than the everyone who's gathering in some other living room where I'm not today. <laughs> We're right here, Pamela. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you didn't invite me to your living room, John. Um, it's like six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but with Mike Nichols, it's like two degrees. He just really did know everyone. So you get all the starry star names. You know, Meryl Streep is in here, Julia Roberts, Tom Hanks, Al Pacino. And then you get people that I just kind of personally adore, like Emma Thompson and Nathan Lane. And then you have that Kevin Bacon effect of you're like, wait, how do you know him? And then you, you know, draw the, the dots. And, you is know, Kevin so, Bacon himself in the book? Kevin is not yeah. in the book, no. I'm sure they met. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, it's, you know, Cynthia Nixon, her first play was a Michael Nichols play. Patrick Wilson, lots of theater actors 
theater directors, fellow playwrights. Really great stuff from one of my favorites, David Hare, David Robb is in there, Jules Pfeiffer. It was the 60s era in particular that I felt like this keening for. And there's a lot of Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel in there, not surprisingly, particularly around the discussion of The Graduate, which is a, a whole chapter. And they both say quite openly that that Mike Nichols, in effect, was responsible for the breakup of <laughs> Simon and Garfunkel. You know, wow. so I just like I had like the yes, yes, you have to read it to find out why. And I like it was like the sounds of silence was just going through my head the whole time. And I kind of grew up on Simon and Garfunkel. So it all felt like very bittersweet, but in a good way. There are people like lots of critics and writers, Susan Sontag. Again, hmm. you get the feeling that like Mike Nichols was like hanging out in a room and it was Elaine May and Susan Sontag and like Jack Nicholson. And you're, That's what amazing. happened there? You know, it's that kind of thing. Everyone is in this book. And it really, like a lot of oral histories, the strength is that. The strength is in the voices. I think that they chose to focus on particular periods or works mm-hmm. rather than kind of run through the thing. And I, I I think that decision is kind of has its pros and cons because within each section, you can kind of get a lot of repetition of like, yeah, Mike was this way. And then, mm-hmm. you know, the next fancy person, Candace Bergen, will be like, that's true. And, you know, and I think that the interviewers, you know, they had so many great people and each of them are so clever and witty that you wanted you can imagine that they didn't want to not include stuff like they couldn't get rid of their darlings, but it kind of has this and also and also and also. And then you think, well, couldn't that space have been used to talk <laughs> about one of the other movies that that didn't get as much attention? And mm. not surprisingly, you know, the Nichols and May stuff, the early period, that was just great to read about, to go through the inception in Chicago of that show and how it took off. Does Elaine May say a lot in it? Elaine May says nothing because Uh, Elaine May does not do interviews ever. That's too bad. So she is a missing voice and so is the voice of Nichols's widow, Diane Sawyer. So they're not in there. They're only in there indirectly. People talk about Diane Sawyer as really having saved Mike Nichols in a lot of ways and that relationship. He just could not get over the fact that he was dating her. You know, <laughs> he was just so delighted. He was so in love with her, and it does feel like a real romance. So there's a lot of joy in this book. Now I'm feeling real grief, though, for all the interviews Elaine May never gave. They I would know. be such a joy. <laughs> and she's also said she will not write a memoir ever. Ugh. So... There you go. Then the other book that I read uh, while I was on my summer vacation, my winter vacation, I read Kristen Kimball's memoir, Good Husbandry, Growing Food, Love, and Family on Essex Farm. And this is a kind of sequel to her first memoir, The Dirty Life, which I talked about earlier on the podcast. Background story, Kristen Kimball was living in the East Village. She was a freelance travel journalist. She was traveling all over the world. She was also, interestingly, a vegetarian. She goes out to rural Pennsylvania to report on this farmer and who was part of this new wave of young farmers trying to do things in an environmentally responsible way. And he's like slaughtering a pig and she's wearing a white Agnes B shirt. And like within <laughs> moments she's covered in blood and she's slaughtering the pig with him. And they like wake up the next morning and eat sausage. And like she's no longer a vegetarian, which is why I brought that up. And the dirty life follows their decision to move to far upstate New York, kind of Lake Champlain area near Vermont and start up a farm called Essex Farm where they grow and raise everything. I want to say that I'm going to use all kinds of farm terminology incorrectly. The last time I talked about the dirty <laughs> life, I said like a sow was a was a baby cow. I now know <laughs> it's not. I think it's a female pig. I know that now. But forgive any future errors. Um, <laughs> Farming is something I really like to read about, but I think I would be terrible at doing this, <laughs> <laughs> as, as will be made clear we all, here. We all find our niche. Yes. <laughs> but this is a book I recommend if you aren't interested in farming at all. So so Good Husbandry picks up on this farm that she and her husband run. They, they grow everything from—they do the produce, they do grains, dairy, meat. Everything is done by horse— herbs. They do their own maple syrup. And maple syrup is one of those things that feels like, well, you know, it's either log cabin or, you know, good Vermont maple syrup. And like how that's kind of the range. But in fact, I tried their maple syrup and it is like on a completely different scale. Like I, it, it's something that you would think like, well, you know, vinegar is vinegar is vinegar. It's not it, mm-hmm. like what they make is, I think, 
pretty great. Unfortunately, not available in New York City. Good Husbandry picks up after they've been running the farm for a few years, and it goes into the birth of their two children, home births, and raising kids on this farm, and what happens to their relationship when, by necessity, she's kind of relegated to the house. She was out there farming, and issues of growing a farm and achieving scale and economic feasibility while not compromising their standards for labor practice and for environmental sustainability and the decisions that go into that. And they're always really just scraping by. You get a sense of how hard farming is. And it kind of makes me feel like at the end of the day, I'll be like, I replied to 68 emails and like these people are out there like, you know, breaking a horse in the morning and then like going and milking the cow and everything that's involved in running a farm. And also, Lauren, you will be delighted to know that there are dogs in this book. I am delighted to know that. I think probably the only person who knows fewer animal terms than you is me. Here's a fun fact (laughs) about Lauren Christensen, which is that she was given the animal beat here (laughs) at the Times book review as an editor, and she had to, you know, let us know after a couple of months of torturing her with books about birds and cows and horses and dogs. It's just dogs. I I know all the dog breeds. I know nothing beyond dogs. We'll only give you the dog books, Lauren, from now on. All right. Let's run down the books before we go. Uh, I read Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. I'm reading The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. I read Department of Speculation by Jenny Offal. And I read Good Husbandry by Kristen Kimball and Life Isn't Everything, Mike Nichols, as remembered by 150 of his closest friends, by Ash Carter and Sam Kashner. John, Craig, Lauren, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank thanks, you. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back. Not right away, but I do. The Book Review Podcast is produced by the great Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with a major assist from my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Mm-hmm.